Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You're done with your Oreo? <laughs> yeah, done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. Yeah. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just a murdery thingy thingy What's up? Hey. Hey. How you doing? Are you ready? Are you ready? For the night of nights? The what is Night that? of Nights Tonight. That's that High School Musical. Oh, that's why I don't know it. <laughs> Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy next year. I think that's next year. Remember we were talking about that? Dude, I am so excited. I know. It's going to be good. It's going to be so good. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Oh, yeah. This is Mystery Murdery Thingy. This is, you're listening to a podcast. I don't know if this you... This is not an audio If you realized you're listening to a podcast, because, you know... Uh, I hope you do. Excuse me. Because you probably I downloaded it. I'm sorry. We burp a lot. We, I burp a lot. You burp. You burp. I burp you have GERD. constantly. GERD. GERD. It's true. Um, what? Who are you? Mario. I'm the one who has GERD. I'm Mario. I'm Chloe. Hi, Chloe. And this is. What's we up? already said this is mystery murdery thingy. How you doing? Go ahead. Hey girl, how, you doing? <laughs> how you doing? How you doing? <laughs> Can I have your number? Can I have it? So, um, Can I have it? I'm going to go first. What's your name, delicate? And we're going to kind of do like the same kind of thing, 
But I'm going to do, like, a few different ones, and Chloe's going to do one longer one. Because we had a misunderstanding, and no, I just... didn't understand the concept, and I messed up. <laughs> no, it's fine. We just I think we just changed it a couple of times. Yeah, we so definitely we're, did. Yeah, what well, we landed we on... We are doing mysteries from... We're doing British murder mysteries. Yes. Yes. Um, so... Yes. 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 Um... So I'm, like I said, doing, like, a few of them, like, over many, many years. So I'm doing kind of a little survey of some different cases in British murder mystery history, so to speak. Murder mystery history. Yes. Um, But nothing, like, super famous. Because, I mean, there's, like, a billion. Like, you know, my, my, like, favorite Wikipedia page, like, list of unsolved killings. Like, the best (laughs) Wikipedia page ever. Um, It's got, like, another page it's linked to where it's, like, just killings that happened in Britain. Oh, wow. the UK has, like, their own Wikipedia page for all the murder mysteries from there. Wow. Specifically. (laughs) Because apparently people get killed in... The UK all the time, I guess. Well, people get killed all the time everywhere. True. True, true, true. Maybe people are just more into true crime there. I'm not really sure. But, um... Wait, does the US not have one? Not on, not linked, like, off of that page specifically. That's There's very another Wikipedia page that's, like, list of um, serial killers by country. And that one definitely has, like, a tab for the U.S., obviously, because the U.S. has, like, a ton of serial killers, including one that I'm going to talk about in my weird shit in the news today. But we'll get to that at the end. you got to stay to the end. Okay. Stay until the end. Okay, so the first one I'm going to do is the murder of Robert Packington. Okay. Um, all right, okay, all right. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, going forward in, in time, right? So this is the morning cast your mind back the morning of november 13th 1536 oh i remember that day of course twas a thursday it's lately raining um <laughs> so it's <laughs> robert packington he was a successful exporter of um like clothes and materials and such and uh, had become quite quite rich uh at this point you know the the sort of burgeoning you know um uh, business class that was developing in, in England at this time. And he also became a member of parliament. Um, so a pretty well-known, you know, guy, right? A uh, famous guy. Um, had a lot of enemies as well. And one of those enemies had someone or, or themselves shot Robert Packington as he was walking across the street in Cheapside to go to the services at Mercer's Chapel. So he was on okay, his way to so church. Going to church. Yeah. And what's um, unique about this murder is that they think, uh, historians think, that it was probably the first murder by a gun in London, in, in like, all of history. Oh, wow. Okay, so that's their, le- okay. That's its, like, claim, claim to fame. Okay. Um, and I'm just going to read a little uh, description of what happened from um, this book called, uh, I think it's called Acts and Monuments. Um, I guess it was kind of like a yearly, like, you know, list of things that happened or whatever uh, by this guy named John Fox, uh, who will come back later. So, quote, And one morning, amongst all other, being a great misty morning, such as hath seldom been seen, even as he was crossing the street from his house to the church, he was suddenly murdered with a gun, which of the neighbors was plainly heard, and by a great number of laborers there standing at Soper's Lane end, but... 
the de-doer was never a spied nor known. A spied. Close quote, yes, a spied. I like that word. Yes. People should use old-timey words more, I think. <laughs> because I do. That's my... <laughs> I was going to say, uh, like you? <laughs> in my wheelhouse, a spied. Um, a word that Mario may or may not use in casual conversation. Um, one thing they weren't too good at, though, in the 16th century was, like, spelling. There was no, like, standardized spelling. So they offered a great reward, but it's, like, G-R-E-T-R-E-W-A-R-D-E, which I think is kind of funny. Grit. Um, a grit reward uh, was offered. Well, then, if there's no, like, standard for spelling, then there's no way you can be good at it if there's no that standard. Is, that is very true. Eh? That is that is eh? a good, that is a, a good, though, facile point. Um, look it up. So a great reward was offered for, you know, information leading to an arrest, but the murder was, was never solved. There, there was never really more information that came out other than that, uh, even though, again, it happened, like, in the morning in plain sight of a bunch of people. I don't know. So this killing was seen as part of, you know, kind of in the context of the larger conflict between, of course— Catholics and Protestants, which has plagued the United Kingdom for many, many centuries, all the way up until today, where it's like people are afraid that it's going to all get mixed up again because of this whole Brexit thing, right? And what's going to happen yeah. with the border between Northern Ireland and, and the rest of Ireland, um, you know, now that we've actually, like, had peace there for, for a while. Uh, what was the... the um, the peace accord, it was like 1998 or something. It's been like 20 years. Um, but anyway, at this time, obviously, there was a, a large amount of conflict going on between the Catholics and Protestants in um, England. And Robert Packington was very much on the side of the Protestants. Uh, he was a frequent and just virulent critic of the Catholic clergy, um, saying that they were, uh, quote, covetous and cruel, um, which I'm sure was probably true (laughs) at the time and probably a lot of other times um, because, you know, the Catholic Church has done a lot of fucked up shit. Well. Done a lot of good stuff too, but especially in the 16th century, obviously, you know, they were doing a lot of fucked up shit. Things weren't great. Exactly. Uh, Things weren't great, to to put it diplomatically. So— when he was killed, Robert Packington was seen as kind of like a martyr, right, by the Protestant reformers. Okay, okay. And there was just like a lot of many, many theories. I mean, I guess if you're going to take that role. Yeah, I mean, it's not clear, you know, what what really happened, but that's the... The um, mystery. That's the mystery, yes, and, and that's the frame that was kind of put on it afterwards by people who, you know, what, were friends of his and had, you know, held the same views as him. So there were many theories that, you know, emerged as to who was behind the death. Um, it was kind of understood that it was probably a contract killing, right? The um, first theory that kind of came out was uh, by this guy named John Bale, uh, who was a Protestant reformer, and uh, he thought that it was a conservative bishop who had ordered the murder. Um, and, and he kind of came out with that theory in 1545, so several years after the, the murder actually occurred. Um, and then Edward Hall, uh, a historian or chronicler, as they would say at the time. A what? Wait, say a, that one more time. A chronicler. Okay. He wrote shit down. 
that happened. <laughs> not necessarily in front of him, but, you know, just It's just, things. like, a super, like, in, like formal name, or not informal, a very formal name for yeah. a guy who writes you stuff know, down. <laughs> before there were historians, there were chroniclers, right? Before there were scientists, there were naturalists. Before there were astronomers, there were astrologers. You know, it's the same thing. It's just, like, the old-timey version. Um, so this guy, Edward Hall, uh, he also thought that the Catholic clergy was behind it, but nobody specifically. Um, and okay. he came out with that theory in 1548, so a few years later. And, and then several years later, so now we're talking, you know, about 20 years after the, the murder occurred, John Fox, the guy who wrote the quote that I read earlier, um, also a, you know, sort of chronicler historian, uh, he came out with actually multiple theories that kind of contradicted each other. Okay. So it's kind of confusing. So in 1559, um, he sort of implicated this guy named John Stokesley, who was the former Bishop of London, saying that Stokesley had, quote, paid a priest 60 gold coins to carry out the murder, close quote. Not totally clear where he got that information, just kind of like rumors, you know. Uh, and then a few years later, in 1563, John Fox stated that John Incent, the former dean of St. Paul's, made a deathbed confession that he was actually the one behind Robert Packington's murder. I love a deathbed confession. So apparently there was a death. So I, I guess deathbed confession takes precedence over rumor, I suppose. But sometimes people just say shit just to say shit. Because who's going to contradict you, you know? Exactly. Right? No one's going to argue with the dead guy, um, hopefully. And then in 1570, he came out with uh, kind of his final theory that it was actually an Italian who had murdered him. Not sure. Mm. Maybe he's got something against Italians. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not Italian. A lot of people think I am. I'm not Italian. You're very um ethnically ambiguous. Yes. Is the term that that's you're the word. searching for. Yes, that is the you term. You definitely could be Italian. I could be, but I'm not. So uh there was another uh suspect that came out uh or or that was uh, implicated by this guy named Raphael Hollenshed, who claimed that a felon hanged at Banbury had not only a death bed confession, but a gallows Another confession. One. So standing there on the gallows about to be hanged confessed to Robert Packington's murder, supposedly. Okay, so we've got supposedly. two deathbed confessions. Competing deathbed confessions. One on a bed, the other not in a bed. <laughs> so no one really knows, right? It's it's will re obviously remain a mystery because cold case from the 16th century, not really probably going to get solved. Yeah, we'll never, ever, ever find out. Probably who, never find out. Also stuff like like Jack the Ripper, we'll never know. Right, right, right. Um, but again, we're, we're staying away from like super famous stuff like Jack the Ripper. Um, but whatever happened, um, Robert Packington was buried in St. Pancras Church on November 16th, uh, 1536. So, you know, almost exactly... Uh, I can't do math in my head very well, but, you know, over 500 years ago, right? <laughs> what was it, 1536? No, less than 500 years less ago. Less than 500 years ago. A little bit less than 500 years ago. So, <laughs> I can do that math, right? Okay, so uh, that's the... 400 the, and... Uh, 
I'll leave you to figure that 82? out. 82? Sure, why not? So um, the next one I'm going to do is the murder of John Henry Blake. So fast forward to the early 19th century. Uh, so, you know, 250 years later um, or so. Born uh, John Henry Blake, he was born in 1808. He was the youngest son of Lieutenant Colonel John Blake, uh, so a pretty prominent guy. And uh, John Henry Blake, you know, he, he worked as a bailiff, uh, and then he worked as a land agent for his infant nephew. So, you know, he, he was essentially like a debt collector, a law enforcer, um, not a terribly popular guy around town. You know, he's like basically the, the guy who's willing to go and, you know, crack some heads when somebody's not paid their debts or whatever. You know, he it, it right. it's not like he's a, like a the... modern bailiff or a modern law enforcement officer. He he's you know, he's like the the town bouncer, basically. <laughs> and um this role as uh the uh, land agent, so you know, collecting the debts. You know, the the debts and and the the, the um what am I trying to, the rent or whatever, right? However it worked at that point. Um, he became even less popular when he started doing that for the man who was widely known as the worst landlord in all of Ireland. <laughs> uh, wow. Because this took <laughs> place like in Ireland. That's like a pretty big title. <laughs> yes. So uh, amongst all the, the terrible, terrible landlords in all of Ireland, apparently Hubert de Burgh Canning, the second Marquess of Clanricad, Clan Ricard, I'm not, Clan Ricard, was the, the absolute fucking worst. He wasn't even there, right? He was what they called an absentee landlord. Okay. And I think, you know, we've, we've all kind of dealt with this at one time or another. If you've, but I'm you know, not, I'm not exactly sure what that is. So I'm going to, I'm going to explain it. Okay. So, you know, if you've ever, um, rented a house or rented an apartment, you're, you may have run into this situation, right? Where your landlord is not the person who you see and who, like, comes to your place and who you, like, deal with. Your landlord lives in, like, a whole nother city or another country, right? Oh, you, damn. you never see them at all, but they own the place. They're technically your landlord. And then they hire, like, a management company or another guy, oh, okay. you know, to, as like, the caretaker. Be, be, like, the middleman. And, exactly. Okay. So they collect the rent and then they send it to that guy uh, or whatever. So it was the same back in the 19th century, right? So while... You know, uh, Hubert was off in London doing whatever God knows what uh, he was doing. I'm not sure. Uh, being super fucking rich and British. Um, <laughs> he had people like John Henry Blake there as his enforcer, including okay. what he was famous for, which was evicting tenants. Essentially, basically, he was Ebenezer Scrooge. That, I mean, I think. Wait, is that what Scrooge know. did? Yeah, he was all uh, totally. You remember? He's like, no. I mean, I my he reference. Owned a bank or something. No, no, no he he was a, a landlord. He was a, a property. He he ran a property office. Um, my reference, of course, for Ebenezer Scrooge is and always will be the Muppet Christmas Carol, yes. the best version of the Christmas Carol that's ever been or ever will be. Yeah. And if you recall, in that, you know, he's talking about how he threw out all of the little orphans on Christmas Eve. With their little frostbitten teddy bears. <laughs> During the Marley and Marley song, they reference it and they feel bad because they died and they went to hell. But he still doesn't feel bad. It's only partway through, but he'll get there because he sees his 
name what? on the, you know, tombstone. I'm telling you the whole story of a Christmas Carol because if don't you don't know it, orphans like you know, dying of frostbite and going to hell. No, no, no. That's Marley and Marley who died and went to hell. Oh. No, no, no. The 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 little I, I totally infant, miss. you know, whatever. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's pretty dark. <laughs> I mean, they may well have died as well. You know, they were standing in the cold, you know, in some dirty London street in the 19th century. I'm sure many of them did die. Um, but yes, a little dark. So anyway. Um, moving on. Moving on. But this kind of sets the scene, right? That It's, it's that sort of time, right? Um, not a great time to be poor, especially if you're Irish it's and really your landlord never, is in London. Really never a great time to be poor. True. Um, so when um, John Henry Blake was also on his way to church, he was actually going to mass at, at uh, uh, this town called Lockray near, nearby. Uh, he was getting driven there by his uh, driver, Thady Ruane, uh, when they were attacked uh, by men with guns. Um, John Henry Blake was fatally shot. Uh, Thady Ruane was also fatally shot. Um, his wife, John Henry Blake's wife, was not shot. She survived, but she was not able to identify the attackers at all. And no evidence was ever discovered. So there was really not too much that they could you know, investigate, um, this, you know, being the early 19th century, there wasn't like the forensics really didn't exist. So they, they never really like came to any conclusion as to who did this, but it was very much seen in the context of the Irish land war, uh, which was not technically a war. It wasn't like between two countries. It was more like an agrarian insurgency, um, so the the poor, you know, land um, working people of uh, Ireland basically committing acts of assassination, of terrorism, as we would cast it today, uh, resistance. Um, not all of it was violent resistance, but much of it was. And this lasted between 1878 and 1909 approximately. So that's what this attack was right. So against this, the landlords? This was what could be seen as kind of like an, an early, you know, um, part of this uh, Irish land war. Okay. Which did eventually lead to major land reforms in Ireland. Like, was eventually. Was it just a lot of, like, unfair laws and stuff like that? Yeah, it was things like getting rid of absentee landlordism. Okay, okay. And, you know, having the ability for people to, um, you know, buy their land after a while. Uh, or, you know, paying, you know, reasonable rents for their land, you know, not getting mistreated. Um, you know, it just just very basic reforms that, like, needed to happen but weren't going to happen probably unless <sighs> there was this kind of, like, violent resistance. Now, I'm not advocating violent resistance in any context, but in this context, that's that's what happened. There was violent resistance and they ended up getting the changes they wanted, so... That's history, you know. Um, it's a little difficult to, you know, kind of like judge one side or the other w without the proper historical context, and I don't really necessarily have it. You know, I have my bullshit internet research, <laughs> so <Yay. laughs> you know. Um, but I, it, it seems like an interesting, you know, thing. I, I thought about looking kind of more into the Irish Land War. I'm sure there's kind of more mysteries that came out of that 30 year period as well, of course. 
Um, okay, so that was the murder of John Henry Blake. So, and so that one's like unsolved. Like they don't the, know who the, did it. These are all completely unsolved. Yes. Um, although the next two, there are more suspects. Okay. We're getting more into the modern era now. So the next one I'm going to do is kind of a famous um, cold case from uh, the town of Peasenhall, Surrey, England. So this is like south um, eastern England, I believe. So now we're 1902, so the beginning of the 20th century now, but 100 years later, and on a dark and stormy night— Literally, dark and stormy night. It, it was literally a dark and stormy night. This is like part of the story. Uh, this was May 31st, 1902. Rose Harsant, a servant, um, was s- stabbed to death and found the next morning. Oh, wow. Uh, brutally, you know, her throat was slashed and then she was stabbed, oh. stabbed to death. And the investigation actually found it gets worse that she was actually six months pregnant oh, at the time. Oh, God. So the police start to look into this, what happened. Suspicions kind of immediately fall on this guy named William Gardner. So William Gardner, he was allegedly... The husband! No. He was (laughs) allegedly um, Rose Harsin's secret lover. Okay. So you're close. Very, very close. Um, He was husband to a different woman, but we'll get to that. So... What William Gardner also was, was a prominent clergyman. He was trying to work his way kind of up the ranks of the, of the local clergy. Uh, he was also the foreman at uh, a local, I think it was a um, some kind of like cabinetry making or tool making or some, some such thing. Um, but he, he was like the boss and he was the father of six children. So he was like a well-established, you know, kind of like... Um, up-and-coming guy in the community when all of this happened. And rumors that he and Rose had been involved with each other had kind of been circling for a while. There had been this court case in which uh, one of his employees had supposedly overheard him and Rose having a, you know, sort of Mm. assignation, if you will, you know. Mm. That's Uh, a big word. Right. Coitus! Um, (laughs) (laughs) Supposedly, you know, pre-coital in the pre-coital you know, sort of period, and um, <laughs> brought this, you know, kind of charge out into the open once William found out it was him. And there was this whole trial. He, um, William Gardner was acquitted. So the elders, which is how this Wait. kind of happened, the elders of the Methodist Church said that— Wait, you could he, get—you can go to, like, trial for adultery? Well, this is what I'm, I'm explaining. The Sorry, sorry. No, that, that's okay. The, the elders of the Methodist Church, you know, in that community— Okay. You know, they were kind of like who you would go to, right? Okay. Just like oh, okay, okay, you, got it, you, got would, it, got you it. might go to a, a rabbinical court or, or a Sharia court if you're, oh, you know, for, okay, if got you're it. Muslim or you know, and it's it's something that you would kind of take care of in the community, right? Same sort of thing, except in this instance, it was like the elders because it was like the Methodists. Do you think they wore pointy hats and robes? I don't think so. In the spoken tongues. In the episode of uh, <laughs> what was it called? It's just uh, like what it sounds like, like the elders. Oh no, no, it was. More just like you know, wearing like black and you know, like the white, you know, kind of like collar things. Yeah. And yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. They it, look kind of like bibs. It, yeah, exactly. Uh, which they like just stopped wearing. Yeah, in, in, I like, heard about that. Courts and stuff in England, like 
last year or something. Yeah. Like, just happened. <laughs> and, like, the the wigs, too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, they, like, just stopped wearing all that shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty boy. Like, come on, guys. We, we stopped that, like, a long time ago. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> um, when and where am I? Okay, so... William Gardner and she, you know, supposedly had been involved with each other. Like I said, there was that whole court case. Um, she was actually taking organ lessons from him. So Oh, and, in more ways than one, wasn't she? Right, right, cranking his organ. Hey! Hey! She had started helping out with the Sunday school. You know, they were spending a lot of time together. Um <laughs> it, it was just, you know, everybody kind of knew what was going on. Organ well, lessons. Right. And he also lived, like, in sight of the crime scene. So he definitely had a uh, motive, mm-hmm. right, to cover up the pregnancy and, he was and the in relationship. The vicinity. He, he had, you know, um, what, what do they say? Um, motive means an opportunity, right? right? He had the opportunity. He was right there. Um, and he certainly had the means. You know, he could have, I believe the, um, they think that, that the knife was picked up from within the home. As often happens in in murders, right? So the first trial, um, when when he was first tried, because like I said, it was it was pretty much just him who was uh, implicated at, at the beginning by the police. It, it was just like a total sensation, right? Because this is like a small community. Oh yeah, you know this isn't like London, right? This shit didn't happen all the time. Um, like it was happening over in you know dirty London. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty dirty at this time. Uh, so it kind of, you know, rocked the small community. But it ended in a mistrial when the jurors came back 11 to 1, 11 guilty to 1 oh, innocent. wow, wow. They said they could not come to a, 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 unanimous. a, a unanimous verdict, and therefore it was a, a hung jury. 12 angry jurors. Right. Um, they did another trial. This one also ended up with a hung jury. This time it was also 11 to 1, but it was 11 to 1 the other way. Oh, wow. 11 innocent to 1 guilty. I feel like that's pretty rare. Yeah, no, this is a very strange case. And it was also rare and and kind of strange because the prosecution at the end of this, they only did two trials. They issued what's called a writ of nole prosequi, which is not an acquittal. So usually, you know, if you go to trial, right, they find you innocent or guilty, right? You're either, um, yeah. you know, acquitted or or you're, or you're found guilty and you're sentenced, right? Did not happen in this instance. It was like in between. Yeah. No was- le prosequi, what that means is unwilling to pursue. Basically, the prosecution didn't think that it was worth pursuing the case anymore they're not admitting okay. that he was okay. innocent like they've spent too much time or something just you know th- that it wouldn't be worth it to to pursue which is not that unusual but apparently this like actually like putting out this writ of no uh noli prosequi is pretty uh rare in like british legal history according to what i was reading so william gardner lives out the rest of his life he doesn't die until 1941 um, and no one else was ever tried for the crime. Hmm. But there are definitely suspicions. There are a couple of other uh, men that Rose was involved with that people think it could have been it one have been of them. It could have been them trying to cover up. 
perhaps. Do we maybe know who the their father kid. was? Nineteen oh two, they didn't have paternity tests, but well, it was. Just, I mean, it was but assumed, that doesn't mean it, okay. You know, it was assumed that it was you know William Gardner's, um, and there was like a letter that we're not really sure if it's like authentic or not, where some of this is kind of like authentic, you know, uh, substantiated. Um, people also think it might have been the one of the other members of the local clergy who was like headed out for William Gardner, um, who, who oh, seemed so kind of like, crazy. Kind of framed him, perhaps. Um, but the most kind of interesting uh, theory, I think, and the one that uh, the BBC documentary or the, that I watched, uh, Julian um, Fellows, most mystery, most mysterious murder. Um, what is it? It's called Julian Fellows' most mysterious murder. I think. Uh, anyway, that episode, what he came to was that it was probably actually William Gardner's wife Ooh. who did it. And that the police at the time just weren't at all thinking it might have been a woman. Because, you know, 1902, people weren't really thinking that way, right? Yeah. But it kind of makes sense. You know, she... She finds out and she's pissed. Yes. Not only that, but her her kind of whole life, her whole, um, you know, plan for her, her, how her life was supposed to be is coming crashing down because of this girl, right? Um, her husband, with whom she has six kids. Right, whom, right. You know, she's built a life. He was in the workhouse when she met him. Uh, she was from a better family. She married him against her father's wishes. Um, he... Of course, William Gardner then became this prominent citizen, good job. He's going to become the clergyman. You know, she's, yeah. like, very happy. But it all comes crumbling down. You know, he's having this affair. You know, obviously she hears about all these rumors, right? Um, not only that, but she lost a child in infancy right before oh. this happened. Oh. And now, you know, Rose Harnett... You know, she... They both got pretty um, strong She's motives just kind of in the way. So then. she had a very strong motive. And again, she had the same means and opportunity that William would have had. And what um, Fellows thinks, that the guy who did the, you know, the, the documentary about it, uh, was that she was probably planning on confessing if he had gotten, um, if he had been found guilty. Oh, okay. So she was just kind of so banking. She like wanted to, okay. you know, that he would be acquitted. Um, but apparently, they lived out the rest of their days. They they moved out of uh, Pizanol, uh after all of this mess um, up north somewhere. I think they opened a little corner shop and apparently just lived out the rest of their lives. That's sad. That there's wasn't really any justice. No justice, as is the case for almost. All of the things that we talk about, because again, I, I mean, they're mysteries. These yeah. are the mysteries, you know. Embrace the mystery, right? Uh, so the last one I'm going to talk about is the death of Roberto Calvi. So this is now we're fast forwarding to the 1980s. Um, so you know, fast forward about another 80 years, and uh, we're talking about Roberto Calvi. He was a big time. Italian banker. He was the chairman of what was called Banco Ambrosiano, um, which was a big-time bank in Italy at a certain point. He was, uh, Roberto Calvi was from Milan, um, and he and the bank had very close ties to the Holy See, the 
Catholic seat of government, you know, the, the papal states, wh- okay. where the pope lives. Uh, the pope is technically the ruler of the, the papal states, like e- even today. Uh, technically, the pope is like a head of state as well as being like the head of the Catholic Church. Wow. Um, because the Catholic Church, ever since, I suppose, the instantiation by what was the, whichever Roman emperor it was, um, you know, that Catholicism was going to be the official religion of Rome has always kind of been tied in to the, the, the political, um, you know, governmental right. uh, side of things right. as well. Right. So uh, by 1981, though, uh, Banco Ambrosiano and Roberto Calvi were both embroiled in a big financial scandal. Um, uh They were accused, and eventually it was found by the the authorities that they had illegally exported uh, money from Italy without, like, paying the proper export tax or whatever. So um, at this point, Roberto Calvi was given a four-year suspended sentence um, he was briefly jailed, um, during which time he actually attempted suicide. So this is how much, it, you know, again, his life just, like, coming crashing down, right? Um, going from being, like, a big-time banker, yeah. uh, like, being the chairman of a bank, to then being in prison. You know, I mean, it's got to be pretty um, jarring, right? So he was, though, released on bail. He kept his position at the bank, but things continued. Oh, wow, they let him keep his job? They uh, they initially let him keep his job, you know, because nothing, I guess, had been like, you know, the court case hadn't actually occurred at that point. But um, things continued to deteriorate. So by the next year, by June of 1982, Banco Ambrosiano was collapsing. It was, it was basically done uh, as, a, as a bank. Um, it was also, um, interestingly, owned... 10% of it was owned by the Vatican Bank. And the Vatican Bank actually ended up, I think, paying out its debts once it got, like, liquidated and everything. So there, there's all these, like, kind of weird connections to, like, the Vatican. Um, and the 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 Vatican Bank, I don't if you know anything about it, it's it's had its own, like, lots of scandals. And, like, oh. you know, there, there's one of the things that the new pope was supposed to, like, fix was the was like all this the corruption weird, weird inside stuff the with bank. the bank yeah okay. and the corruption and stuff so anyway um on june 10th of 1982 roberto calvi was uh found missing from his apartment in rome oh, and it was learned eventually that he had actually fled the country on a, fa- a false passport um in the name of uh, giano roberto calvini so he was you know basically skipping town um, not facing up to the music, he went first to Venice, and then. So this happened while he was out on bail. Um, this is after that court case had already happened. He was given a four-year suspended sentence from that oh, okay, from that okay, initial okay, charge. Okay, got it, got it, got it. But the, things had gotten even worse since then, and he like he knew that more was coming. He was going to go back to jail. There, there was there was way more to what was going on at Banco Ambrosiano than just not paying the export taxes, right? Okay. And we'll, we'll kind of get into some of that oh, stuff in, when, when I get to the theories of, what, mm. of why he was killed. So um, This goes deep. Yes, it, it, it just it kind of keeps unraveling. So Roberto Calvi, he first went to Venice, then he went to Zurich, and then immediately to London, where 
at 7.30 a.m. on Friday, June 18th, 1982, a postal clerk crossing the Blackfriar Bridge found Calvi's body hanging from the scaffolding under the bridge. Yeah. So pretty Ooh, that's gruesome. Pretty grisly gruesome sight for for this postal clerk to come upon. Um weirdly his clothing had been stuffed with bricks in like all of his pockets and he was found with $15,000 worth of cash on him in Maybe three different was, currencies. Mm, oh, oh. So very kind of strange. The day before Calvi died, he um, had been stripped of his post at the Banco Ambrosiano, so he eventually had been fired. And his 55, is really sad, his 55-year-old private secretary, Graziella Crocher, actually jumped to her death. Oh, my god! At the bank's headquarters from the fifth floor and died. Oh, my God. And her death was ruled a, a suicide. And... Initially, so was Calvi's. The coroner um, in the UK actually returned two, um, uh, two, there were two different inquests that occurred. The first one was in July of 1982, where his death was ruled suicide. Um, The family, his family, the Calvi family was not at all. Um, they, they had no faith in that. They were not convinced. Right. Um, at no point during this will will they be convinced that he, he was, was not He was found murdering. on a scaffold? He was found so hanging he from was a scaffold. pretty high in the air? I'll get to that. Okay. So the family, the Calvi family, hired a private investigator, George Carmen, to look into it. And a second inquest was done in July of 1983. And it recorded what's called an open verdict, which means that the coroner was unable to determine the cause of death. Not saying it was suicide, not saying it was homicide, not saying it was misadventure, whatever. Just, we don't know. So that's where we stood at, you know, that point in July 1983. Obviously, like I said, the family believed throughout all of this that he had been murdered. Um, So fast forward to 1991, so eight years later, the Calvi family still working on this. Like so many of these families of victims, they are just tireless and right. inspiring in their pursuit of the truth and justice, yeah. right? Um, it's it's always just like so – if you can take anything good out of a tragedy, it's like the tenacity of, of the, the victims' families and victims yeah, who like to like stand up for their own and, rights and to yeah. stand up for justice. They like – if you don't do it, it will not get done, unfortunately. Right. That's just kind of how it how it works. Um, so they hired in 1991 a New York based investigator, um, Kroll Associates. So a team of investigators, really, and they do a two year investigation. And what they find is that forensic examination definitively proved that he was murdered and was not did not commit suicide. Now, I was how say, we know like, that. I was just going to say, like, the bricks. Oh, okay. Hey, what's up? Oh, those is are that, the... Is that for me? Yeah. Is that for us? <laughs> is someone coming to pick us up? Are we going to a party? Uh, um, <laughs> We're going to a party later. We are going to a party later. Friendsgiving. We are going to I don't know if y'all could hear that. There was some, like, beeping outside. I feel like that definitely is going to be heard. <laughs> Probably, right? Those are really loud. I know, right? But I was going to say, like, the bricks reminded me of, like... Make to make it look like a suicide, 
He's sitting yeah, in bricks. Sure. In his, I feel like that's weird. Yeah, I, I, I do. Honestly, either, I do not know what the bricks are hang, all about. Well, it reminded me of Virginia Woolf. Right, she stuffed well, rocks yeah, in her but pocket. She walked and into to, the lake. Exactly. So maybe he was, if it was suicide, he was planning on doing that, or if the right. person who murdered him was like, oh, like, oh, maybe I'll make it look like this, but then he was hanged. Yeah, question but that's mark. Just, exactly. It doesn't make sense because yeah. the, the body was never going to be weighed down because he was hanging. But anyway, they know definitively that he was murdered, not did not commit suicide. They know this because no paint or rust was found on his shoes. So what that indicated was that he had not walked on the scaffolding. Okay. Right? Okay. So they they know that his body was placed there. They showed this evidence to the police, but unfortunately at that point the London police had no interest in taking up the case again. So Calvi's body was actually exhumed in 1998, um, so several years later even, and was examined by a German forensic um, scientist. And there was a report that was published in, I believe it was October of 2002. So Calvi's neck was also found mm-hmm. by this German forensic scientist to not have the tail, tail signs of hanging. So apparently he, he wasn't Whoa. actually killed by hanging at all. He was only hung, or hanged rather, after he was dead. And that Calvi himself had not touched the bricks that were found in his pockets. So again, oh, just more more indications that's so that it was weird. Murder. Yeah, I, I just don't get that. Um, and now we're getting to the issue of how high he was how high he was up okay, there. Okay, okay. So it was also found, they figured out that at high tide that one could actually be standing on a boat and st- tie a body up just standing on a boat at high tide but then the body was found at low tide that's why it, it seemed like it, so it, it was... was way up there okay. exactly exactly so um they kind of figured that part of it out as well so finally in september of 2003 the city of london police oh wow agree to reopen the investigation we're now you know what is this? Eight, uh, thirty-one years later, they they finally yeah, say, "Okay, later. we'll we'll look into it as a murder." Okay, <laughs> great, thank you so much. So, what the police found was that Calvi had stayed in a flat in uh, Chelsea Cloisters uh, nearby in London uh, right before he died, and that this guy Sergio Vacari who was a small-time drug dealer with some ties to the Italian mafia, had stayed in the same flat at the same time. And Sergio Vacari was also found dead. Now, it said on the Wikipedia page three months later. I don't know if that meant three months after the police found this out, like in 2003 or three months later. After after Calvi Calvi died back in 1983. I'm not sure. But either way, Sergio Vacari was also found dead, also with bricks in his pockets. Mm. Not only that, he was also found with a list of the names of a member of a secret illegal Masonic society... That Calvi was also a part of. Yo, yeah, that's dark. Called the Blackfriars. Okay, okay. But apparently, that's just a coincidence that he was found was under Blackfriar Bridge. <laughs> there was not apparently anything to that specifically. 
So now we'll get to the suspects. So uh, the first suspect is uh, Francesco Di Carlo. Uh, he was a mafioso who allegedly killed Calvi because Calvi had lost a lot of the mob's money when Banco Ambrosiano had gone belly up, right? So kind of the idea here is what, what eventually comes out is that Calvi had been involved with laundering money for the mafia, and some of that money oh, apparently had been lost to okay. the debtors in the liquidation of Banco Ambrosiano. So obviously— So somebody's got to gut—somebody's right. got to die. So Roberto Calvi sleeps with fishes or whatever, or hangs with bricks in his pockets. Pushing up daisies. Is that— is that a, a mafia saying? Hangs with bricks in his pockets? No. That I don't know about? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not from Sicily. I'm not sure. I don't know about the... I'm not Italian. I already said that. Sleeping with the fishes. Right. He's uh, pushing up daisies. You remember, we watched The Godfather. We did watch right. The Godfather. Don't forget the cannolis. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. allegedly... That sounds great. Right um, <laughs> I know, right? Allegedly, DiCarlo had been ordered to carry out the killing by two mafia bosses, Giuseppe Calo and Licio Gelli. So in July of 1996, DiCarlo basically agrees to turn state's evidence, agrees to give, you know, his testimony to the prosecutors, and he implicates Calo and uh, two other Italians. There are a number of different Italian mafiosos who were supposedly involved. I'm not going to get into all of them. There's like seven of them. So... These people were indicted by the Italian authorities at that point um, in 2003, um, and I've got a, a quote here from uh, the Wikipedia. So, quote, in July 2003, the Italian prosecutors concluded that the mafia acted not only in its own interests, but also to ensure that Calvi could not blackmail Politico institutional figures and representatives of Freemasonry, the P2 Lodge, so just parenthetically, that's the secret Masonic society that he was involved in. Um, so to get back to the quote, and the Institute of Religious Works, with whom he had invested substantial sums of money, some of it from Cosa Nostra and Italian public corporations, close quote. So what that's saying is basically he lost a lot of powerful people's money who were not very happy about it. Yeah. Therefore, he had to go. Yeah. Yeah. Just for it all not to come out. Obviously, that didn't really work out because it, it did come out, but I guess not until 30 years later, so it kind of did work. So it kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you don't know, Cosa, Cosa Nostra is just another name for the Italian mafia. This thing of ours uh, is what that, uh, what that actually li literally means. Um, so in 2005 police bring charges on the theory that Calvi again was killed to cover up his involvement in the uh, mafia-linked um, money laundering, but all of the trials and subsequent appeals ended up with all of them being acquitted for lack of sufficient evidence. Yeah, I was going to say, there's not much to go off of except for, yeah. I mean, it's very speculative. Yeah, exactly. So all of the Italian judges that Heard the case, basically said, there's just not enough evidence here, and we, you know, have to acquit if the glove don't fit, so to speak. Okay, OJ. Right? So um, the appeals actually continued through 2011. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So it, it went on for, like, a long time. Um, but like I said, it, it, it came to naught. Um, so that was the killing of Roberto Calvi in uh, London. So those were my four mysteries for this week. Yay. Um, and those I, were all very, uh, all of them had some kind of strange element to them. Exactly. I, I felt like there was kind of a, a thread between them. Um, but I also thought it was, you know, just interesting, you know, to see kind of different murder mysteries throughout the, the centuries, you know, in, in England. Um, and my sources, of course, Wikipedia. Yep. Um, that was Everyone kind of, donate! Right. It's um, that time of year they're asking for donations. Give, just give to Wikipedia give, if you can. Just give your three bucks. And then give us a dollar. And then give us a dollar. Uh, go to patreon.com slash thingy. Um, so the Robert Packington page, the John Henry Blake page, the Land War page, the Roberto Calvi page, a few others. Um, also a little snippet from a book called Ireland Since the Union, Sketches of Irish History from 1798 to 1886 by, uh, Justin Huntley McCarthy. And then also that, um episode of Julian Fellow's Most Mysterious Murders. BBC? Uh, which is from the BBC. It was, it was really good. Uh, I want to watch some more of those. He, BBC he was pretty entertaining. I love the BBC. Okay, do I have a story for Wait. you? Can we take just a little break? Yes. Okay. Glasses off. Okay. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> um, I'm going to I'm a, I'm a talk about my sources first. Okay. Um... So I got the audiobook uh, by Thomas Harding called Blood on the Page, a murder, a secret trial, and a search for the truth. Ooh. And I did two different articles. You can't handle the truth. You, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. What's that from? A Few Good Men. I've never seen that. Oh, they're doing it at uh, Community Players soon. I wonder if that scene is in there. <laughs> Probably. Okay, and then I got two different articles from The Guardian by Duncan Campbell and Richard Norton Taylor. So... And you ended up listening to, like, most of the audiobook, right? Yes, almost all of it. Okay, cool. So, let's talk about the murder, the very mysterious murder of Alan Chapelo. So, Alan Chapelo, um, which I wrote down as many times as I could because it's a fun name, Chapelo, was born August 20th, 1919. Reminds me of Chaparral. What does that mean? Is that uh, a name? No, it's a. I believe an occupation. It's like a cowboy. It's what cowboy. The, it's what the Spurs were called before they were called the Spurs. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. <laughs> you better get out of Dodge. <laughs> okay, so he was born August twentieth, nineteen nineteen, in Copenhagen, Denmark. He was an award-winning writer and photographer, and he actually specialized in writings about uh, the playwright George Bernard Shaw. And I think he wrote two books about him and was working on a third one. He was a photographer. He focused on portraits of artists, musicians, philosophers, literary figures, um, people along those lines. He was a conscientious objector during World War II and worked on a farm in Hampshire. And what's very interesting about this case is the house that Chapelo uh, lived in and also where he was found dead. Uh, he lived in the same house since he was a teenager uh, for 64 years in Hampstead, a village uh, in North London. 
his house was valued. Okay, so after he died, it was put on the market and uh, it's set to be refurbished. It was valued at 4.1 million pounds. Um, and Chapelo was also a secret millionaire. Mm. So the neighbors described Chapelo was a very weird dude. Okay. He was eccentric and he was a recluse for at least the past 15 years before he died. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very private. He didn't live, he didn't um, usually leave his house. Um, sort so, of an agoraphobe. Yes. And he was, like I said, he was working on a new manuscript about uh, George Bernard Shaw. Let's talk about the discovery of his body. So, a little before noon, June 12th, 2006, two police officers, Mike Cole and Sam Azulos, received a call and were dispatched to 9 Downshire Hill, where 86-year-old Alan Chapelo lived. So, what prompted this call uh, was that uh, his card, his credit card, had been used fraudulently and a large sum of money was taken from his account. The bank tried to contact him, uh, but they couldn't. And uh, this is, I think at this point, it was like the second or third time it happened. So they issued a welfare check Mm. on the house. And especially after they couldn't contact him. So uh, when the officers got there, they met two other police officers. The doors were locked. There were no signs of forced entry. And uh, let's talk about this house. So this house had lots of neglect there was a completely overgrown garden um when they when the police finally broke their way in there was garbage debris everywhere old newspapers Mm. plastic bags bottles fragments of wood etc there were loose electricity cables like hanging from the ceiling and at this point they're worried um they can't find him the room at the end of the hallway was also locked detective sergeant nick giles was called and uh, he came back with a steel battering ram they called the Enforcer. It took five to six attempts before the lock broke. Um, there was junk and dust everywhere, piles of it. It looked as though the owner never threw anything away, and the place reeked. Um, quote, every surface and area was covered with dust. Everything had a gray look to it, end quote. One of the officers later recalled, none of the lights worked. The kitchen seemed as though it had been used in months. The bathroom on the second floor was filled with books, including this, like filled with the, like in the sink, in the bath, in the toilet even. The main bedroom was filled with old clothes. A blue sleeping bag was found. The officers searched the house for two hours and they didn't find a body or anything. So at that point, they decided to look for evidence that might point to where Alan Chapelo might be if he's not in his house. So they found papers documenting a flight to the USA scheduled to leave March 26th and then returning May 1st. And May 1st was six weeks before this search happened. The search happened in uh, June 12th. So May 1st was when he came back from his trip. They found a credit card, a British passport, and both of those were in Chapelo's name. So what they did was they um, filed a low-risk missing persons report. They also talked to the neighbors. Um, a neighbor n- named Pamela Listel, she was very close to Chapelo. she confirmed that he did in fact return from his trip, but she hadn't seen him uh, in a few weeks. Um, and she said that he would have told her if he was going on vacation again. And other neighbors said it doesn't make sense that he, he would go anywhere. Like, he's in, he's in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next day, 
the bank reported another suspicious use of his card. So authorities went back and searched the house again, this time more thoroughly. Again, there was no body found. Next day, June 14th, um, Detective Sergeant Nick Giles took o- takes over the search. Um, and like I said, the neighbors were saying it's highly unlikely that Chapelos would be anywhere else but his house. Mm-hmm. So they brought in the dogs. Mm. Let's the talk about... Cor- sniffing dogs. Yes. You know? Let's talk about... A German Shepherd named Lacey. Okay. Lacey is a very good girl. She <laughs> approached the room to the right of the stairs, which was filled so high with stacks of papers that you couldn't get in. She lets out a specific low bark and she starts digging. She starts digging at papers and piles and everything. And they're like, oh, something's here. Something's here. Now, at this point, it could be anything. It could be like an animal that snuck into the house. It could be anything because sure. this house is a total mess. Right. Um, At this point, the homicide, Northwest London's homicide unit was called, and the officer in charge, Pete Lansdowne, took over. Um, Pete Lansdowne said to Thomas Harding, the author, that this was, quote, one of the best whodunits he's ever seen, end quote. It took about five to six hours for them to clear enough piles of paper to eventually find, uncover just a leg. Um... And because they had to take photographs of everything, they had to analyze it and uh, for human contact, like fingerprints, blood, hair, stuff like that. Eventually, after digging through five feet of paper, they fully uncovered the body. Lying face down in the fetal position was Alan Chapelow, arms bent beneath him. There was a trail of uh, blood spray around his head. Um, extensive neck and head injuries, including the jaw and, fa- and facial bones and cheekbones. The back of the skull had been crushed, and there were extensive fractures to the neck, which suggested strangulation. He had numerous broken ribs. Um, His upper body and his sweater had bits of congealed wax on it, and his clothes and skin had burn marks, which begs the question, was he tortured? Yeah, that sounds like a really brutal murder. It was very brutal. Um, There was a minimum of five heavy blows, probably struck with an object as opposed to being like stomped or or punched. And that was. Sounds like he was killed by someone he knew. That was the cause of death. That was the approximate cause of death they found, yeah. Let's get into the investigation. So they've got a few pieces of evidence. Six weeks earlier, the day after coming back from his trip from the U.S., Alan uh, visited the police station to report that his mail was being stolen. So while he was away for those five weeks, uh, his neighbor had been putting his mail items through his letterbox, um, uh, uh, like a little slot in Mm -hmm. the door. Right. Um, So when he got back, he found that his door had been forced open and that there was no mail, Mm. like, at all. Um, So after three days of searching, uh, Chapelo's phone, another piece of evidence, was never found. It was likely stolen, Um, and we later find out that this is true, it was stolen, the police called the service provider and they were told that his phone had been used numerous times in the past few weeks. Um, So let's talk about the postman. Nicholas Solman, the postman responsible for delivering mail to Chapelo's home, filed a police report detailing about how um, about five weeks ago he was unable to deliver Chapelo's mail because there were branches and debris blocking the the letterbox, blocking the door. So he goes back, he returns the mail to the sorter, um, and then uh, about 45 minutes later, he was approached by a man 
who asked if he delivered the mail. Did you deliver the mail to Nine Downshire Hill? Salman said no. The man asked if he still had the mail. Salman said that it was back at the sorting office. The man said that he was the uncle of the person who lived there at Nine Downshire Hill and that he'd clear the branches for him. He'd clear the path for him. Just want to be uh, helpful, you know? Um yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not the killer. The you know, <laughs> if that's what you're thinking, I just want to be helpful. The next day, isn't that weird? How like sometimes the murderer will like stick around and like talk to the police or like become friends yeah, they want to the like see their and, like, work and but they'll like try to help them like which is weird catch right? themselves in a weird way. Yeah, it's like those weird killers who like. You know, like, a lot of times it's, like, nurses. Yeah. Where they'll, they'll like, tr- they'll put someone in grievous danger so they can save them. So yeah, they can, like, be the like hero. an ego thing. It's very For strange. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There was a nurse that was on trial not too long ago, I think, in uh, Canada, who was like that. I think it was a guy. Wow. Yeah, but there's been, like, a bunch of them. Anyway, go on. The next day, uh, the branches were gone, and uh, Salman noted that this would not. This was like not an easy task. This would have taken a long time. That's why he didn't just like, you know, pull. Sure. Apart. It was like covered. Like this would have taken work, um, not a few seconds. So. He gave a description of the man. The man was a Chinese man, about fifty years old, of average build. Um, a bit stocky. He had scruffy collar length black hair and was wearing beige clothing. So the first theories that the police had was that maybe the victim had befriended a con man and who he allowed to enter the house and then violence ensued, killing him. Or it was a burglary gone gone wrong. Maybe the thief was caught stealing checks and stealing the mail um, and violence ensued. So um, what is also weird about this is that the trial in itself was secret. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But a lot of the information was based on interviews from the author, Thomas Harding, um, who looked into this for two years before writing a book on it. So he talked to a neighbor named Nigel Stewart, the next door neighbor. Nigel Stewart was at the time. Name. Nigel Stewart. <laughs> That's a terrible British accent. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to try one. Thank you. <laughs> Chair of the Hampstead Safe Neighborhood Scheme. I'm not going to offend our British listeners. Um, Which I'm doing. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> um, So he was the chair of the Hampstead Safe Neighborhood Scheme at the time of the murder, and he knew about numerous incidents of mail theft. So this wasn't the only... Alan wasn't the only person who was mm. getting his mail stolen. Mail thievery Mail was theft, happening. garbage theft, stuff like that. There's lots of identity fraud going on. I see. Um, so these things... You said this was 2006, right? Yes. So, yeah. So these things were still happening. Sure. He passed along the info to the police, um, but... He was never interviewed. He never had a statement taken, nothing. Um, That begs the question, was Alan's murder part of a wider spate of thefts? I have a question. What's up? Was his killing part of a wider spate of death? God damn it. I was, like, really ready for, like, (laughs) an actual question. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Um, So investigators began trying to figure out who was using Chapelo's bank account because that... Wait, but, but were there other murders that were connected to it or... No. Okay. Um, 
the the fraud the fraud was the thing that led them to Chapelo in, sure. in the first place. So sure, sure, they sure. went back to that. So they started looking at the records of the fraudulent purchases. Right. So forth. Right. So they found that an application was made to the bank on May 26th to request online access to the account, which was weird because Chapelo didn't use the internet. Of course. He was an 86-year-old dude. Didn't he didn't he only had like a cell phone and that he barely used anyway. Right. Right. Um so the online activation code was used June 1st to access the account and was traced back to an internet lounge in Char- uh, on Charing Cross Road. And about an hour later, a call was made to the bank. The caller said that he wanted to withdraw money, but he had forgotten his PIN number. So after failing to answer the security questions, the, the bankers were like, nah, dude, this, no. Right. The account was blocked. And a new PIN number was sent to Chapelo's home address. They don't know. They don't know. I know, I know. But still, we know. We know. Um, (laughs) A few days later, the account was again accessed by someone using this new PIN. Of course. At this point, um, now that uh, this person had the new PIN number, money was being transferred between Chapelo's various bank accounts. One time it was 20,000 pounds. Another time it was 10,000 pounds. June 13th, this was the day uh, after, this is the second day of the search, searching Chapelo's house. Um, His PIN number was changed at an ATM and there was money withdrawn. His credit card was used again that day at an Indian restaurant called the Curry Paradise. And investigators Peter Devlin and Stuart O'Brien interviewed the owner of the... and the head waiter of that restaurant, like, hey, tell me about the person who was using this card. Right. So the owner said that an oriental-looking couple had dinner, and when they paid, um, their credit card was declined. Whoops, easy. Okay. Their credit card was declined. So uh, the customer was like, oh, give me a second. He called the bank. He called himself Alan, said, hey, what's up? I'm Alan. Um the bank refused to unblock the card. So what happened was the man left his his phone with the restaurant huh. as like a deposit and was like, "Yo, I'll be back in a few minutes to pay this bill." An hour later, the fee, the there was a couple. So the female customer came back. She returned. She paid the bill partly with her credit card and partly in cash. Hmm. So the man uh, was described as being in his late forties. He was about five ten, had graying hair. Uh, was Chinese, spoke with an accent. Same description as right. the postman said. Right, right. Um, as the male thief. As the, as, yes. So the owner also said that the man called the bank using a silver flip phone, which does not mat- match the description of Ellen's phone. Hmm. Now, this is important because banks identify um, who they're talking, that they're talking to the right person by uh, identifying the SIM card. Right, right. And so they only would have even, like, spoken to this person if they thought it was Alan. Mm -hmm. So the fraudster probably had Alan's SIM card in his phone. Mm. Um, Scotland Yard may be able to find a home address attached to the flip phone's IMEI number, which is, like, a serial number for a a phone. So that's what they ended up doing. So Devin called the bank that issued the credit card that belonged to the female customer. So they're still investigating. Right. They found that her name was Dong... Hui, and she had also bought plane tickets to Zurich, Switzerland that morning. Oh, shit. As this was happening, the report came back from Scotland Yard. They now had a name and, a, and an address, um, and they got this information from the, the phone. 
45-year-old Chinese exile Wang Yam, who lived at 13 Denning Road in Hampstead, which is a less than five-minute walk from Chapelo's house. Um, so investigators received a, a search warrant and headed to the house. They found that him and his girlfriend, Dong Huey, um, had moved out. They just missed mm. them. A neighbor informed the police that she had ordered background checks on the rest of the residents after there was all this news of identity theft. Turns out when she got Wang Yam's background check back, he's he's known for fraud and material falsehoods. Mm. So the landlord also told investigators that Wang Yam's checks kept bouncing every time he tried to pay rent and that he was behind and he owed her over 3,000 pounds. Um, so she was forced to evict them. Uh-huh. An alert was sent out to airlines to watch out for this guy. Right. Um, so in September, three months after Chapelo's body had, befa- had been found, uh, Wang Yam was arrested in Switzerland after being... Uh, he was arrested, and then he was extradited back to Britain for trial. He was charged with fraud, theft, and murder. So let's talk about Wang Yam. Between his arrest and the trial... It emerged that Wang Yam had been a member of MI6 and worked in London for a few years. So Wang Yam is a very interesting dude. He was a research assistant in the Chinese Nuclear Weapons Institute from 1984 to 1987. He escaped from China and moved to London and applied for asylum and, and applied for asylum and was granted for asylum in 91. So he was a computer expert. He graduated in computer technology, so it makes sense that MI6 wanted him. He ran his own computer company called Quantum Electronics Corporation in 97, but then it went under two years later in 99. A couple years later, he set up another company in 2002 dealing mortgages that also went under. Um, it went bankrupt two years later. He also had family ties with China's first communist leaders. His grandfather was third in command to Chairman Mao. Oh. And his father was a Red Army general. Interesting. And in the book, they talked a lot about Wang Yam. I could go on about this guy. Mm-hmm. But they talked about how, like... Uh, at He, like, almost got reported when he... He, like, went... When Chairman Mao died, he was a kid and he, like, went to school and they were all forced to wear, like, all white and mourn. And he almost got reported because he wasn't crying hard, hard enough. Jesus. Yeah. It, 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 like, he lived in, in communist China and was very, mm-hmm. very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2005, Wang Yam filed for personal bankruptcy. So dude was had financial problems big time. Right. So there's debt. your motive. There's your motive. So, like I said before, there was a secret trial. So Wang Yam stood trial at Old Bailey Courthouse in January 2008. So the basic case against him was based on his use of Chapelo's credit cards and those fraudulent transactions. So investigators, when they were searching the house, also found signs that someone else had recently been in the house. Cigarette butts, footprints, a recently used sleeping bag, and condoms. No DNA, uh, fingerprint, or footprints evidence was linked to Wang to the murder scene, and it remains a mystery as to who had been in the Mm. house. So, although he was convicted, there is a lot, a lot of doubt about Wang Yam and that he was involved. First of all, there's no connection to Alan 
Chapelo and Wang Yam besides the fraudulent use. They never, Wang claims that they never met each other, that he's never been to his house, stuff like that. But he admitted to stealing his identity. Yes, I'll get to that. Okay. So um, the home secretary at the time, Jackie Smith, signed a PII, a public interest immunity certificate, which officially made the case, uh, or the trial was held, quote, in camera, in private. Um, So journalists were ordered to leave the courtroom in the name of national security. And this is because, I guess, this is what they say, because he was an MI6. So he could have revealed, like, state secrets. Yes. They didn't want to, like, take the chance. Yes. That he says something in court. Yeah. Yeah. The entire defense was heard behind closed doors without the public or the press. And this is the only murder trial in the UK where the defense was heard in secret. Very strange. The government went to great lengths to make sure that Yam's links to MI6 were to remain secret. So Wang Yam maintains his innocence. He he does admit to receiving Alan's stolen checks and credit cards, but he said he got them from a Chinese gang and that he had never met Alan and he had never been to his house. The police claim that the male fraudster returned to Nine Down Shire Hill after he knew Alan was dead. And Wang brings up this point. He says, if that's true, then why didn't he take the passports and the credit card information that was there in plain sight? In the first trial, there was more than one trial. So the first trial, the jury could not agree on the murder charge, um, but they did agree on the, the fraud and the theft charge. So he was convicted and jailed for four and a half years. In the second trial, he was convicted of all three. So he was convicted of fraud, theft, and murder. And he was sentenced to life in prison with a recommendation to serve at least 20 years. So this is a quote straight from The Guardian. So Yam actually wrote to The Guardian in 2013 with a letter that stated, quote, I believe the only way to my freedom is to let the public know what is my defense and and what I had done in full picture. No cover-up. I was convicted for murder without even police have evidence that I know the deceased or ever met each other. There is no evidence to link me with the deceased, and there are unknown DNA fingerprint footprints that do not belong to me. And that's true. They mm-hmm. don't know who that DNA belongs to. Yeah. I feel like we've seen, I think the Tayorata case, there, was, there were also like, some fingerprints that, like, were never identified. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, it's always strange when there's just, like, forensic evidence that never gets tied to, like, anyone. It's very like, weird, right? Clearly someone else was involved. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, Not to say, like, this person necessarily wasn't involved, but someone else definitely was involved. So like, we don't of, have the whole picture. Part of Yam's legal argument was that because his trial had not been reported fully, potential witnesses had not come forward. In January of 2014, The Guardian reported on the case. So not all of his... This was, like, kind of confusing to me, and I was kind of trying to figure it out um, in full, but some of it was let out to the public, and some of it wasn't. Okay. So in January of 2014, The Guardian reported on the case, and that's when two witnesses came forward. So a neighbor told The Guardian that one day in 2007... um, while Yam was in custody, that he heard a rustling on his porch. And when he went on to investigate, quote, 
I opened the door to find a man with a knife going through our post. He pointed the knife at me and I shut the door. He then shouted through the door that he had been watching our house and knew that I had a wife and a baby. He said if I called the police, he would kill me and he would kill them. He waited in the porch for half an hour. I hid in the house but did not call the police until he had left. The police showed a strange lack of interest and just told me to change all my bank accounts. It is clear to me that there it is clear to me that there was a violent person or gang operating in the street and the lack of police interest was very bizarre. End quote. Hmm. It's been difficult for Wang Yam to show his innocence because of this this court order, um, like the public can't voice their opinion and the press can't voice their opinion to kind of push that agenda because no one knows. There's a lot of evidence that was heard in secret that he's not allowed to disclose. Um, And he did try to go for appeal, but all of the appeals were denied. denied. It's very strange. It's very weird. So the questions here that remain, did Wang Yam kill Alan Chapelo? And if he did, was the motive money and if it was money why chapelo specifically that's a big question here like chapelo was just this random dude who you know um an old an old writer recluse living in this house why him um what kind of thi- what kinds of things were heard in the trial why was it held in secret is there other evidence that we don't know about is there some kind of gang out there committing fraud? Was Wang Yam a part of it? Was or was he in the wrong place at the wrong time? Was he really given like this information by some like other people? Um, and again, he just got mixed up with the wrong crowd. Right. And then again, if Wang's DNA wasn't found in the house, whose was it? Whose was it? And that is the very strange case mm. of Alan Chapelo. That's good. Yeah. Lots of mysteries. Lots of mystery. Lots, lots of, of questions. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Is it Great. time for weird shit, shit in the in news? The news. Weird, weird shit, shit in, in the, the news. news. What? What? Weird. Weird. So Go my, on. Mine, it, it's not, I guess, so much weird shit in the news as it is incredibly horrifying serial killer news in the news. Um, so you, y'all may have heard about this. Yes. Um I guess in a sense it's been going on for a while, right? But anyway, there's this story um, that came out yesterday. um, Well, today, I guess, but yesterday from your perspective. In the Washington Post titled, He Claims to Be America's Deadliest Serial Killer, Police Believe Him, by uh, Kyle Swenson. And, okay, so there's this guy named um, James Little... Uh, who claims that he is responsible for over 90, nine zero murders between 1970 and 2013. Absolutely insane. All, all over the country. Literally in every region of the country. And this guy, um, Little, you know, he is... You know, just kind of a, a, a drifter um, in and out of police. Sorry, in and out of uh, jail. Uh, his entire life had been, you know, variously convicted of 
um, you know, many, many violent crimes, mostly against women, uh, some of which he inexplicably got very short sentences, uh, which is always extremely frustrating yeah. uh, to read about or so hear he about. Was out and in and out and in and killing people each time. That's, I, I guess that's what it appears. Yes, that that all, although his record seemed bad at first, uh, when you compare it to perhaps being responsible for ninety murders, turns out it was actually a lot worse than than they thought it was. Um, so essentially. This guy, Little, has been slowly confessing to more and more murders as time goes on. And as DNA evidence has, you know, developed, he's been implicated in more and more murders. Like I said, all over the country, in California, in Louisiana, um, in in the Midwest, in the Plains, in the East, like all fucking over the place. And there are more of these. Like, there are definitely more that are gonna keep coming out um whether he killed 90 people who knows i mean that might just be exaggeration he's one of these serial killers who like wants to make their stuff sound worse than it is i think in in a way perhaps he's definitely really into it like he's not doing this because of any like compunction that he feels like he just kind of gets off on i think telling people about the stuff that he did at this point, right? And he knows there's, like, no more that they can do to him. He's serving three consecutive life sentences right now for three murders that he did in, in L.A. And um, whether or not charges are going to be brought against him for some of these other murders, especially the ones where there's DNA evidence, we don't know. It's always a question, right? Do you want to spend the resources when this guy is already going to be in prison for the rest of his life? On the other hand, those victims were victims too, right? Those victims have families, they have right. friends right. who want justice, who want closure, and this may in some small way bring that to them, uh, perhaps. So, you know, in that in that sense, I think it is worth it. I mean, even if you have to spend an extra million dollars, you know, bringing another trial or two or three or five or whatever – to see justice done, I think. For the, especially it's worth since that. it's been so long. Yeah, for some of these, it's been a long time. And then for some of them, it hasn't been that long. Because apparently, he was doing this up until 2013. Oh, what the fuck? Yeah, 1970 to 2013. <sighs> he claims that he was active for 43 years as a serial killer. That's fucked up. Yeah, it's real, uh, real fucked up. And uh, just as a little cherry on top, um, he apparently told one of the detectives that, uh, quote, God, God put him on the earth to do what he was doing. So he may be one of these, like, religious fanatic uh, serial killers, which is like a subset of serial killers, where they literally believe that God is telling them to do this. So they're, like, divinely ordained yeah, there was a- as, like, the... the angel of death or whatever. Yeah, I've heard of cases like that. It's a not too, I think, uncommon uh, psychosis um, that leads to a lot of a lot of heartache and uh, and death. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. But that you know very well may be the most prolific serial killer in American history. Um, currently, the verified kills um is the most number of verified kills is uh Gary Ridgeway Ew. uh the Green River killer uh at 49 v- those um, ones are according verified according to that article yeah yo that's um, nuts but of course there are others that who claim to have killed you know more and we we may never know Ted Bundy claims to have killed over 60 um you know 
we'll, we we don't really know, but it seems like with this guy at least we'll find out about a lot more of them because again of the DNA evidence. So so I've got some weird shit. Cool. Um, well, it's not What's necessarily it look like? weird. It's just kind of funny. Is it green? No, it's um, is, it's four thousand years old. Is it runny? Ew. Oh, four thousand years old. This is from the Vintage News, and the title is 4,000-Year-Old Tablet is the World's Oldest Customer Service Complaint. So basically, it's a tablet from ancient Mesopotamia. About 4,000 years ago, Nanny, possibly a businessman or artisan, wrote a note to a merchant, E. Nasir, complaining that the copper ingots he had purchased were of inferior quality and that Ir Nasir had treated him badly by not refunding his money. Nice. This is what... People never People change. never change. 4,000 fucking years ago, there was a guy who bought a thing who got pissed when it didn't work <laughs> out the way he wanted it to do. I fucking love that. Here's the the translation. <laughs> Quote, how have you treat how have you treated me for that copper? You have withheld my money bag from me in enemy territory. It's now up to you to restore my money to me in full. Take cognizance that from now on I will not accept here any copper from you that is not of fine quality. I shall, from now on, select and take the ingots individually in my own yard, and I shall exercise against you my sight my right of rejection because you have treated me with contempt. Yeah. And it was one star. It was uh, inscribed in cuneiform, one of the first written languages in the Middle East. Right. Very interesting. I uh, like that. An Amazon review. Right. Perfect. The tradition continues four thousand years later. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> yeah, neat. that's it. That's the podcast. That. Thank you for listening. Yes. Thank you for listening. Um, tell all your friends. Tell us what, tell your friends what you like to listen to, what your favorite yeah. podcast is. Yeah. Even um, if we're not your favorite podcast, which is bullshit, <laughs> just tell them. Um, just lie. Just we, lie. We encourage lying about anything. No, we don't. Oh, we, we do not. That's, we don't. I, sometimes I get those mixed up. We do not encourage lying about anything as someone who's as someone who like gets in trouble for telling the truth a lot <laughs> right <laughs> just like it's, I'd i rather just feel be like it's, i just feel like it's better to get in trouble for like being honest <laughs> right exactly which happens to me a lot <laughs> totally totally uh but yeah you know if you're if you're in the u.s obviously it's uh that particular time of year in which we celebrate the conquerors um because we are a nation of conquerors and uh we we enjoy you know Celebrating the, you know, deaths of millions of people. Yeah, because we're um, awful. <laughs> I'm, I'm being snarky. But, you know, yes, um, it is, uh, you know, Thanksgiving. Um, we certainly are thankful that our forefathers Celebrate. came upon this great land and, you yeah. know, killed most of the people that lived here before. Fucked up. It's so. all so fucked up. <laughs> Cele- <laughs> Celebrate a successful harvest instead. Sure. There's got to be some appropriate pagan holiday um, that we could you know, swap out for... Celebrate the fact that you can go to Walmart and get yourself a rotisserie turkey. <laughs> Celebrate the fact that, you know, the NFC East is still in contention and that, you know, the game between Dallas and uh, the Eagles is uh, going to be an interesting game this year. It's not always the case, but it, it actually often is the case. Oh, uh, sorry, did I lose you there? Yeah, I, <laughs> I heard NFL and I just zoned out. <laughs> the, the NFL is an integral part of Thanksgiving. 
No, yeah, that's very true. You know, you you put the game on. You yeah, fall my relatives always are watching football on Thanksgiving. Wake up in the second half, see what's going on. You know, it's I great. for one eat and eat and eat, <laughs> and then I take the best nap of the year. It is a good good day for napping. Good, good, good. That yes. was in capital letters, everybody. The best nap of the year. So you know, and and if you're not in the U.S., then um, happy fall. Uh, harvest. It might not even be fall. It could be summer. Uh, or if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, as as many of our listeners are, uh, happy summer. I'm so jealous. Or spring? Um, spring. I'd yeah. say spring. And, and What's I, ho- it like? I, I hope you're having fun standing uh, upside down. What's it like having, like, it being, like, 85 degrees on Christmas Day? Um, if you, if you live somewhere where it's 85 degrees on Christmas day, email us and tell us what it's like. I bet it's weird. Mysterymurderythingy at gmail.com. Yeah. Follow us on Instagram, mysterymurderythingy. Instagram, um, all that stuff. You know, all the, the bullshits, as Henry would say. All the bullshits. All right. uh, Okay.